You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you for your word and for your word read to us this evening through your prophet Zephaniah. And we ask, Lord, that you would take that word from so long ago and would you uh, show us how unchanging you are through your unchanging word, how a word from back then reaches right out to us today where we are. And so we ask, Lord, that you would do this and that you would be exalted in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so um, I love it when we get to preach through the lectionary, and it, except I don't love it sometimes because we'll find ourselves reading a gorgeous passage like the one for tonight, a prophecy of restoration, um, one of those beautiful passages that you underline in your Bible and you might even write it out or you get it, I don't know how to make it beautiful, you know, there are apps for that where you can make the words all beautiful and then print it out and put it on your mirror or frame it on your wall. This is one of those passages where you would do that with it, except that um, I just think it's funny because there are so many other passages in Scripture, and all of Scripture is the Word of God. Um, And so if we were to treat all of the passages of Scripture like that, we would have some very startling things on our mirrors and on our walls and um, memorized in our brains. It's important to look at the whole picture. It's important to understand the context for such such a beautiful passage as tonight because we can trust that the context Um, as dark as it might be, is going to set off the beauty of this passage like a beautiful jewel. So um, one thing uh, to know about this is that the commentator and um, professor here at Beeson, Paul House, considers Zephaniah a drama. The whole uh, whole book, all three chapters, is a drama according to the classic understanding of what a drama is. And he would go on to say that it's even a comedy. Um, And when you think about the story arc of drama, um, whether it's tragedy or comedy, you find a couple differences. So tragedy, if you've ever seen Hamlet on stage or um, seen some kind of horrible, depressing movie like a a tearjerker, like um, Beaches probably and Steel Magnolias, then you'll know that a tragedy goes, things start, you know, start out and they kind of go up a little bit, but then they go down, down, down. And in reverse, a comedy um, starts down and things then go up, 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 and they even end in such a happy way that you couldn't have possibly imagined such a happy ending. A tragedy is like a mountain between two valleys, and a comedy is like a valley between two mountains. Does that help? So the gospel, our gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually a comedy when you look at it this way because, um, well, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then it's a tragedy because it just goes down, down, down. But if you believe in the resurrection, then the gospel is a comedy because it goes down, down, down. It gets as bad as you possibly could imagine, just like the disciples in the upper room wondering what happened. We followed him and now he's dead. What's going to happen to us? And then the resurrection brings it up, up, up. Um, It gets so much better. Um, It's miraculously the best happy ending that ever could be. Um, So a comedy brings surprisingly good news against all odds. And of course, the gospel is the happiest of all happy endings. Well, Zephaniah's happy ending has so much more power when we follow the whole story arc. So if we were to begin at the beginning, and I won't go too far into it, don't worry, but the whole of the, of the book leading up to the verse before what we read tonight, so verse 3, 8, 
points to a day of judgment and wrath. Um, The day of the Lord is what it's called. I'm just going to read for you very briefly, or if you have your Bible, you can open with me to Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. It's dark. I'm just warning you. It's dark. Zephaniah prophesies, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. The day, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end. He will make of all of the for a full and sudden end he will make of all of the inhabitants of the earth. God will unmake creation, is what Zephaniah is saying. Um, And he's talking about historical judgments that have happened throughout human history, and especially the one that was about to happen to the people of um, Judah right then. They were about to go into exile at some point. And he's saying that that is part of God's judgment and God's wrath. But ultimately, he's pointing forward to the final judgment day, which we know will happen when Jesus returns. And there's a refrain throughout. We heard it in the last verse. There is a fire, the fire of his jealousy. And in the fire of his jealousy, all of the earth will be consumed. This is not good news, is it? This is bad news. And even when I've um, been studying and even when I read it just now, I hear um, Mozart or Verdi ringing in my ears that Latin song, Deus, I can't even say it right, Deus Irae, um, which means um, this day of wrath and doom impending, heaven and earth in ashes ending. Oh, what fear man's bosom rendeth when from heaven the judge descendeth on whose sentence all dependeth. I hear that ringing in my ears. I see in my mind's eye the countless medieval paintings of the Last Judgment. Terrible paintings. Paintings you don't want to look too closely at because they dreamed up all kinds of horrible torches, tortures that we would never even want to imagine. And they paint it all in these paintings. This, this judgment here, Zephaniah is saying, involves the people of Jerusalem. And not just Jerusalem's enemies. Often the prophets will um, speak condemnation on the enemies of of Israel as if to say, they're so bad, and you know they're bad, but the Lord's going to get them. But then the prophet will turn it back around and say, well, yeah, so are you. So Israel itself is also um, under God's judgment. We often will think that the problem is with other people. And if we can identify that there's sin in the other people around us, then if we're acknowledging logic, then we're going to have to say, well, there's sin in me as well. You can't, uh, you know, it's so cheesy, but you can't point the finger at someone else without three more coming back at you. You know, we're all implicated in this. And so Zephaniah is saying Jerusalem is implicated in this judgment as well. They will not be exonerated um, for any kind of special treatment. So why? Why does this judgment come? Well, in Zephaniah, it's so clear there are many different sins of the people that he's acknowledging, sins of the Gentile nation, sins of the people of Israel there, especially in Judah and Jerusalem. 
But more than that, behind all of these sinful actions and sinful um, habits, there is a proud refusal to repent and accept correction. Now he's getting to the heart of it. He says about Nineveh that it is an exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. That sounds like a claim to divinity. Of Jerusalem, she listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. The Lord says of them, surely they will accept correction. He hopes that they will turn and then, um, but all the more, they were eager to make their deeds corrupt. And so in light of all of this, in light of the sin that is not only manifested in outward actions, but also in the inner thoughts and intentions of our hearts, um, in their hearts then, uh, Zephaniah says, seek righteousness in chapter 2, seek humility, and perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. He sees some hope. There is some hope, and he doesn't give up all hope. And we see that. That unfolds here in our passage for tonight in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. There are, we see here in this passage that there are some people of every nation who will be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Um, For some, on that day, the great and terrible day will in fact be a day of mercy and rejoicing and peace. Lord, may it be so. How can we hold in tension this God who is both a God of judgment and a God of mercy? How can his character hold both of these elements in tension? It's just who he is. It's good that he's this way because it means that evil will not go on perpetually. If he was all merciful and there was no judgment on sin and death and the devil, there'd be no hope for us because we'd continually, he'd let us do whatever we want and we would continually be um, self-destructing in our sin. So thank goodness that he is a God of judgment. But then um, in the midst, in the face of his judgment, Thank goodness that he is a God of mercy, that he's willing to have mercy upon those who turn to him and look for help in time of need, who call upon his mercy. We see this, of course, most perfectly in the way uh, our Lord reveals himself through the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross allows God to retain the justice in his own character and also extend mercy to undeserving sinners. There, God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, as Paul says in Romans 3. So there will be forgiveness. There's hope. Um, and in verse 11, on that day you, will sh- you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. Those rebellious deeds will not be held against the people who turn to the Lord for mercy. And again in verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. And then not only is there this promise of forgiveness, but there's also a promise of transformation. And I find this really encouraging because I've been a Christian for 25 years now, and I find that all of these years of living this life of repentance and receiving mercy is it's wonderful, and I'm so thankful for it. Um, they help me to trust that God's property is always to have mercy. But after confessing my sins for 25 years, I really long for transformation. I don't know about you, but I'm sick of confessing to the same old sins. I need to have some kind of assurance that it will not always be like this. And we get that. We get that here in chapter 3, verse 11. 
Then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. That sin of pride is going to be reversed. Um, not only will we be, we be no longer proud, but we'll be beautifully humble, um, relying upon the Lord God. And all the other things fall into, fall into place as well. Um, we, the people are described as having a pure speech, serving God with one accord, doing no injustice, speaking no lies, um, being strong and fearless. And God promises on that day that he will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. So there is good news. This passage of good news brings good news. Yes, we're forgiven. We will be forgiven. We have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. And, and above and beyond that, there will be transformation. We won't always be like this. Um, and we see in this passage that God brings this about in a special way. How is it that God is showing us in this passage that he brings about this transformation? Well, specifically, I would say, when you look at it, there's a little um, seven-part poem towards the end of our passage for today. And verse 17 really underlines a lot of that. There are some things in verse 17 that Zephaniah is intending for those original hearers to have pop out at them. It's supposed to jump out at them. And right here we see um, some things that describe who God is. Because it is who, um, it is God's character that changes us. Who God is changes who we are. And so who is God here? What do we see here? Well, we see in verse 17 that the Lord your God is in your midst. Our God is Emmanuel, God with us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, we know from John's gospel. God and Jesus are humble He who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Our God is Emmanuel, the God who is the babe in the manger, the baby who was hungry, cold, and tired, who definitely cried and absolutely messed his diapers. Our God is the carpenter who got sad or angry or lonely. Our God is the God who was abandoned and betrayed by his friends, rejected by his people, tortured and killed in the most painful and shameful way possible. When we think about our own troubles, when we say, nobody knows the troubles I've seen with that beautiful spiritual, we conclude nobody knows but Jesus. He is the Lord God in our midst. I love preaching on this point of God being Emmanuel, God being with us. And in part, I think, because when I look back in retrospect, I've really um, loved preaching on it because I'm always preaching to myself, of course. I I think every one of us that gets up here is always preaching to ourselves. And especially six years ago when I first came to the Advent, I was drowning in loneliness. You know, I just moved from all my family and my friends. I was single, so I didn't bring a portable community with me. And I often would preach about how God is our Emmanuel, God with us. And this is true. This is not untrue. It's not an untrue thing to preach. But um, the former dean of the Advent event, um, Frank Limehouse, approached me, and he basically was like, you can't just preach that. <laughs> that He would do that. He would do that. I'd be like, you can't just preach that. Um, and I was like, well, why not? I mean, it's true. It's in Scripture. And he was like, well, it's not enough. Um, it, that, 
empathy and compassion of God that entering into our situation is not enough. Um, It's not enough that he's Emmanuel God with us. It's true that he's Emmanuel God with us, but it's not enough because him being with us doesn't save us from our situation. And this I've discovered is true pastorally. When you meet with someone who's in great trouble or sickness, you can hold their hand and empathize. You can be compassionate and you need to be all those things. But you can't give them hope if there isn't a God who is also for us, who's not just with us, but also for us. And so we say, yes, God is God, Emmanuel, God with us. Um, But our true hope comes from the next phrase found here in verse 17. He is a mighty one who will save. If in Jesus, God is imminent, there's a big theological term, or among us, if he is near to us, here um, God is transcendent. He is above us. He is outside of us. He is far from us. Um, I was an avid Sesame Street watcher when I was a kid, and Sesame Street in the early 80s had this silly Muppet sketch where the Muppets would run crazily up to the camera and go, near. And then they'd run crazily back from the camera and go, far, near, far. It was a great way of teaching kids opposites like that. And it lodged in my brain. And I can't help but think about that tension between God being near to us in our trouble and our trial because he's been, um, been a man. He is man. He knows the trouble we've seen. But also he's far and we need him to be far. We need someone who can bring victory over sin, death, and the devil. We need a warrior who will rescue us. And that's exactly what the Hebrew is alluding to, that God is a warrior here. We need someone who's a warrior, who will fight for us, who has power and might that we don't have. We need someone from outside of our closed world. I think about it as if we're stuck. There's a great U2 song from, I think, the early aughts or late 90s that brought someone back from the brink of self-destruction. It's uh, very close to me, a a beloved person of mine. And the song um, was just ringing in her head. She was playing it a lot at that time. And in the song, Bono croons, you've got yourself stuck in a moment that you just can't get out of. In our sin, we're stuck in a moment that we can't get out of. We're spinning our wheels in mud or sand, and and the laws of physics say you can't get out from that spinning wheel unless something breaks you out from outside. Something gets in there and then lifts you out so that you're unstuck. God in Jesus Christ is both with us and, praise the Lord, he's for us. He has the power to free us from sin, death, and the devil. So that's the second thing, and that thing brings us the most hope. But finally, in the midst of this comfort and hope, we find that God, who is one who loves with a tender, joyful love, it says he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. If Paul House says Zephaniah is a drama, and even a comedic drama, then I'm going to say it's a musical. I'm going to go one step further. I've always loved musicals. I love some. I don't like some. But I have usually loved musicals. Even as a child, I took out all of the musicals from our public library, not all at once, but I I categorically went through and watched all of the ones that they had because I loved the joy that they brought, even though they were so cheesy. Um, My family would get so annoyed watching me watch more of them. And so I've lamented the fact that we don't have a lot of musicals playing outside of Broadway in our culture. So two years ago, when it, about this time of year, my sister gave me one of the best 
Christmas gifts ever. We went to go to the movies, and we sat, and we got there late, like we do, and we sat in the front row, or the second row, and we were just staring up this huge screen, and I think I knew it was a musical, but I didn't realize how joyful it would make me in the moment. So we were there sitting watching La La Land, which if you've seen it, it is so fun and whimsical. And the moment they start dancing, you can't believe what's happening because it's so utterly joyful. It's got a terrible ending that's not joyful. But the rest of the movie is so joyful that it makes it worth it. I couldn't stop smiling, grinning from ear to ear the whole movie. And my sister fessed up afterwards. She said she couldn't stop watching me grinning the whole movie. As someone who loves me, she was sitting next to me watching me delight in the song and dance, and she was delighting in me. Musicals bring us joy. They tell us that anything is possible, and they they lodge themselves in our memory. Music lodges itself in our memory in a very special way. Well, I didn't marry Fred Astaire like I'd hoped, but oddly enough, my life sometimes feels like a bizarre musical because my husband and I, for some reason, are constantly singing to each other and over our daughter. Um, It's just a part of our collective sense of humor, thank goodness. Um, It's a mix, a mix of sacred and a mix of very secular, strange things. But I realized, looking back on my childhood, that this is what my parents did then, and they still do it now. When I was a little child, I remember being stood up on the changing table after my mother changed a diaper, and she would say, sing, she would sing, stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. That just lodged in my brain when I was Althea's age. And even now, we call them on FaceTime, and they won't shut up. They just sing all the time at Althea, and she will get cranky if they stop singing, so they keep on singing. Um, Singing will help an unruly toddler to do whatever you need them to do. Um, And I love that Scott has an incredible ability to alter lyrics in appropriate and inappropriate ways so that Althea will ask him to repeat the song he sang about her being a big, big girl, doing whatever it is that we need her to do, and we'll forget what the song is. So we've forgotten a lot of the songs. But it's just fun to me to think that the way we love to sing over her and delight over her is the way that God sings over us and delights in us. And that delight that he has in us causes us to have joy and great peace. God loves us with a tender, joyful love, unconditional, playful, fun and funny, relaxing. Um, And it is this that changes us. Um, Yes, he is for us. Um, Yes, he is with us, but also he sings over us. And so, in closing, we know, we know that our future will be different than our present. We know that even as we have been saved in the past from the penalty of sin, and in the future we'll be saved entirely from the very presence of sin, even now, God delights to deliver us from the power of sin in our lives and from the destruction that sin wreaks. God is a God who changes us, and who he is is what changes us. We might feel cut off and lonely, but he is with us in our midst. We might feel admired in our sin, but he is for us, our mighty deliverer. We might feel unlovely and unloved, but he delights over us with singing, and he calms us with his love the way a parent comforts a small child. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would change our pride to humility, change our sin to righteousness, 
change our fearful shame to joyful praise, all because of who you are and what you've done for us. Thank you. Thank you that because of Jesus, we will not be condemned at the last day. Allow that sentence of freedom to shine backwards through time to change how we live today. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.